Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Mike Adelic. I'm Mike Francatelli. You're you. Today's guest is Gabe Derita. I hope I said that right, Gabe. I didn't get a, a check on that, <laughs> the pronunciation, but it's D-E-R-I-T-A. So I think it's right. I think that's correct. And uh, his Instagram handle is FunGabe with two N's. FunGabe. His world, as he describes, is mushrooms, bikes, coaching, and travel. And uh, yeah, real, uh, <clears throat> real interesting conversation, interesting guy. I feel like we just scratched the surface. We'll probably do a part two because uh, there's so much to get into here. And I think with Gabe being just returning from the Telluride Mushroom Festival, uh, we kind of both had mushrooms on the mind. And uh, you know, I don't really know anything about foraging mushrooms, so that's what we talked about. Most of the conversation uh, is what that's what we talked about. And um, yeah, if you're curious to learning more, uh, the links are in the show notes, show description. Go to effectiveconnection.com. Follow Gabe. Fun Gabe, F-U-N-N Gabe, G-A-B-E, um, on Instagram, where he's uh, always posting a lot of really cool mushroom pictures. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. It's like there's a picture he's holding a mushroom pretty much like twice the size of his head. And there's another one here, really interesting looking mushroom. Garden near, found near Garden of the Gods. Cool. Okay. So I guess he's also putting locations there. So if you want to go and forage. But, uh, but anyway, Gabe's, a, Gabe's an interesting guy. You guys are going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, we, talked, we also talked about coaching, which uh, leads me to talk about our newest sponsor, Being True to You. They have a coaching training program coming up on September 8th. And uh, sorry the, for the little bit of the noise there. The, these wires aren't... Uh, in the thing properly. Um, but they have a, a coach training and certification program for people that want to further their career in the psychedelic field. They are a network of highly specialized transformational coaches. They support addiction, recovery, and psychedelic preparation and integration. And I love how they say psychedelic preparation and integration, because a lot of times you just hear psychedelic integration. But it's really good that they are, they're doing both on both ends. And yeah, I mean, they're, they're just uh, really, you know, top of the line here. Dr. Dan Engel, uh, the founder, uh, Deanne Adamson, uh, who will be a guest on the podcast soon. Very excited to talk with her and uh, see what, uh, what drew her into this work. Uh, but Being True to You is, uh, is the new sponsor here. So I'm really happy that they uh, have decided to support Mikeadelic. And uh, for all of you people out there that are thinking about maybe starting uh, a career in psychedelics in the field, the burgeoning mainstreaming field of psychedelics, um, and you know you have a little extra scratch laying around, why not? Go for it. I think that um, I think that that in the past, I was very averse to things like this. Like I would, I would be, I would just be like, look, I could just learn it online. I'll just learn it myself. I'll learn it online. But it's like this weird thing. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of like working from home a little bit too. 
you kind of get to you get to create your own schedule, you get to work on your own flow. But it's not I don't know if that's a good metaphor because I've been in I've been in office jobs before too where there's not a whole lot of work getting done. You're just kind of killing time before lunch or you know, waiting for the bell to ring kind of thing. But <clears throat> Anyway, much like uh, all of our, uh, well, our, our other sponsor, Fungi Academy, you know, I, I think that I would have always been the person that was averse to programs like that, like Fungi Academy or Being True to You, because my natural intuition is, well, I'll just learn it on my own, you know, but it really is nice when you have something that you commit to, that you have to show up on, uh, on time for. Uh, that people are instructing you, that you have, you know, dedicated lessons and uh, instruction and uh, learning materials. So it is helpful. I, I don't know. I think it's probably something to do with my allergic reaction to compulsory schooling. You know, I think that that I always hated school. I didn't like what they were teaching. And I just went completely the opposite direction. So I've always become kind of, I've always been averse to to that sort of uh, way of instruction. But uh, but then when you have things like this and, and Fungi Academy, where you're actually learning really cool things uh, that will, that, you know, benefit you in your life, uh, that, uh, yeah, they're, it's valuable. So anyway, check it out. The links are in the, in the show notes, show description. I'm going to do more of like a Lex Friedman style, if you ever watch his podcast. Uh, with the sponsors here because I listen to podcasts too, and you guys have probably already skipped over this. So, you know, and I don't want to stop the flow of the show in the middle of the show and talk to the sponsors. And, you know, I'm not Tim Dillon. He does great ad reads where he, you know, makes fun of the companies and everything. And so, um, yeah, it's just that these, these amazing, wonderful people, these companies, uh, are supporting this show, keeping the lights on here, keeping uh, me active and surviving so that I could put out more podcasts. So if you like what they're offering, check them out. That's Sheath Underwear, 20% off with the code Mikeadelic. Fungi Academy, 25% off with the code Mikeadelic. And uh, Being True to You, their coaching training program starts on September 8th. So uh, check that out, beingtruetoyou.com. Uh, slash coach training program. The link is in the show notes show description. And I think that's it. We got Mushroom Revival as well. Check out their products. Promo code Mikeadelic. I think it's a 15%. And uh, Ohana Kava Bar was a sponsor, but no longer anymore. But they're still great. So give them a shout out. Why not? And uh, remember, Mikeadelic is now part of the Time Wheel Podcast Network. So it's me, Michael Phillip of Third Eye Drops, Jen Sodini of Radio Amenti and Evolve and Ascend. And uh, go check out those shows as well. ZN Archive as well, of course. And um, yeah, that's, a, that's about it. Uh, Patreon, of course. Blah. I feel like it's just like blah, blah. You guys know the deal by now, but maybe there's new people. So, you know, just check out the Patreon because uh, that's where we get, you get bonus episodes, you get uh, early release episodes, solo casts, dosedelic comedy show episodes, and then uh, access to the Inner Sanctum Discord chat, where I posed the question recently, who should be the next 10 guests on the podcast? Who should be the next 10 guests on the podcast? Well, 
probably going to have uh, East Forest come back on because I think he's going to be in town. And uh, we talked about doing a pod, so that would be good. Uh, he's great. Love that guy. And Satsang, uh, Drew of Satsang, uh, was talking to his people, so going to probably have him on as well. Got a musician lineup here. We're going to have John Hopkins on, uh, musician John Hopkins. So uh, his music's pretty dope, so check that out. And uh, who else? What else? Uh, I recently read a book, Sand Talk by Tyson Young Kapora. Uh, it was re- How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. It was a great book, and I'm, I'm thinking about reaching out to Tyson. Uh, who else should I have on the show? I, uh, I want to have a, a diversity of different people. I'd love to talk to uh, a diversity of different people, just have uh, some really fascinating, interesting mind-blowing, thought-provoking conversations. So uh, let me know. Let me know what you guys think. And if you're joining the Patreon, you get access to the Discord, and we have chats in there and memes and funny things and, you know, all kinds of stuff. We're just connecting, bringing community together. Which, speaking of the retreat that I hosted with Bill Burns and Max Marshausen, uh, permission was a huge success. Very happy about that. And uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to recap that. And uh, a lot of exciting things coming down the pipe because experience is where it's at. I think the felt presence of direct experience is where it's at. So uh, we, I'm, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot more I just did like a, a little beat there, a little stutter beat. We're going to doing a lot more to bring y'all together, bring people out and in and then out again to come back in if you catch my drift. But, uh, but yeah, I, I really, really get a, a whole different feeling from an in-person gathering and that's what we're really creating more of. So. Big shout out to all you people who have joined the Patreon. Big shout out to everybody that leaves five-star rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts. That helps the show. And uh, yeah, check out all the sponsors. They help keep the lights on over here. So check them out if you feel that there's something there for you. Sheath was uh, one of the sponsors that, that came on for us at the Men's Retreat Permission. And uh, just huge shout out to Robert Patton, Robert Patton Global Podcast. Uh, just one of the most generous, kind uh, human beings I know happens to make an unbelievable pair of underwear. I literally wear them all the time now because they give them to me and they're so amazing. And he gave out pairs and pairs to people at the retreat. Everybody was really happy and actually had a guy who had a little, um, you know, a testicular, uh, issue, uh, with, with, uh, with him. And, uh, the, the pouch really helped with the support that he was looking for in that. So, you know, uh, Sheath is doing good work to support men's genital health. Uh, They also make underwear for women as well. They're just so comfortable. They're so nice. And I, you know, I sheath and unsheath. I wear the pouch and then I don't wear the pouch. Anyway, I, I could go on and on talking about them. They're a great company. I love them. I love Bobby. Robert Patton Global Podcast. Check it out. He's had some great guests on like, hey, Mark Normand and Michael Malice and other people. So he's, uh, he's doing a lot of really good work and, and just overall just an amazing human being. So 
uh, with without further ado, let's get in this podcast with Gabe, Fun Gabe, Fun Gabe, Fungus, Fungi. He's a fun guy. Okay, now I promise, no more adieus. Enjoy this conversation with Fun Gabe. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject the authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power. But we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. Where are you at right now? I like those masks hanging on the wall in the back. Uh, yeah, this is actually my childhood bedroom in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. Um, and I have three red masks from three rad islands. You can't see that one, but there's a, a Balinese mask, a Japanese mask, and a Puerto Rican mask. A little mask collection. Cool, yeah, I have I have one mask. Let me see if I can. Oh, sweet. What is that, a Hanaku or something? It's, uh, so this, I got this from, it's from the, uh, indigenous people of Costa Rica. Oh, sweet. Yeah. They said, the story goes, the, the Buca are a tribe of indigenous people from Costa Rica. The masks are carved, uh, back to the Spanish conquistadors when they were invading Costa Rica. The masks were used as a scare tactic to help them claim their independence. And then they developed like a festival out of wearing the masks and stuff. So, Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I think we all wear masks in our own way, which is kind of why I like the ritualizing of that process. Yeah, we do. Even when we th- even when we think we're not, we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, that's a lot of the a lot of the work that I do explores that, right? The like we where we were met and kind of talking about authentic relating. A lot of it has to do with the assumptions that are kind of baked into the way we move through the world those masks on yeah totally um that's a good place to start like that's where we met we met at um a a men's gathering connection uh gathering Mm -hmm. and and you run a coaching business called effective connection right correct so how yeah how did you make your way there how did how did we meet like how, how did you show up there you know actually a client of mine told me about the men's group and uh, I had just moved to the front range last summer and was looking for opportunities to kind of plug in and, and hang out with more people doing heart-centered work and also just meet cool guys, right? Like I don't, I don't have a lot of friendships in the area. So that's why I went specifically to that event uh, and was bummed I missed that conference, but I'm going to keep an eye on that group chat for the next time you guys are gathering because it seemed like such an awesome group of people. 
Oh yeah, it was. Yeah. The, the retreat we just had last weekend Mm -hmm. was, uh, really incredible. So yeah, it's, I'm definitely inspired to keep creating experiences like that for sure. Yeah. And that's uh, a big part of my work now is, is around creating experiences. And, uh, I guess I came to it. I want to answer your question, uh, through a lot of soul searching in myself. Uh, I was working in the tech scene in San Francisco for like eight years and I, I ended up really burning out and kind of just selling everything, breaking up with a partner, quitting a job, moving onto my bicycle and traveling around for about two years and was really genuinely seeking like, you know, kind of what's going to be a purpose and meaningful life for me and found coaching and facilitation in the process. And just, it was pretty immediate to me, like an intuitive hell yes, uh, kind of when I came across it, that this was the thing. And since getting involved, it's really felt that way. Like, everything I'm doing is an affirmation that this is the right choice that I'm making. And it feels awesome. Yeah. I know you have so much, uh, good information on your website about your story and and how you came to it. I'm wondering maybe if you could just share a little bit of that here, uh, you know, hopping on the bicycle after being burnt out eight years in the tech scene. I I can relate to that, except my bicycle was ayahuasca, but (laughs) I I worked in the, the startup marketing, digital sales, uh, native advertising world in New Mm -hmm. York for like eight years living Mm -hmm. there. And, and, uh, yeah, I got burnt out and needed something different. So yeah. yeah. It sounds like you and I reached a similar like inflection point where it was just like, it was really clear that it wasn't working. I now call it spiritual inflammation where it's mm-hmm. like, you just feel like you have this sense of like an allergic reaction to your life. And you're just like, something's off. I don't know what it is, but if I don't fix it, it's going to be a major issue. Uh, I'm not, you know what I mean? And I felt that way. I was like, wow, this is just going to continue until I die. And it might not be any different if I don't make a radical change. Um, and for me, it was SaaS sales, like enterprise software sales. So it was this constant grind. Um, but yeah, the moment was really that recognition of like, if you close this door, uh, it might never reopen, right? If you, cause I could feel that calling. I could feel that voice being like, no, there's something bigger for you out there. You got to take the leap. Right. And psychedelics were a part of my life, um, before that. Right. I think I had my first journey on mushrooms when I was like 17. So I, I felt like I was mm. through that, had a deep connection to my intuition and kind of that inner feeling of like, when you know, you know, type thing. Right. Um, but the bike was its own form of real deep connection and reprogramming in my relationship to reality when the way that I think an ayahuasca journey is for a lot of people where it just brought me into contact with the present so directly and so deeply that like you were forced to be with your experience moment to moment. If it was sunny and beautiful and you had a tailwind, you get to feel that joy. If it was like pouring rain and you're climbing a hill and you're lost and it's getting dark and you don't know where you're sleeping, you had to be with that uncertainty, you know, like you had to be with how much food you had, how much water you had, like how well you slept. All of those things were just, you were with your experience so deeply. Um, and it's such an incredible way to travel because you're never a tourist. Everywhere mm. you go, you're embedded in the environment that you're in. And people treat you differently when you show up on in their town riding a bicycle. They're like, okay, does this person need medical attention? Are they crazy? Like, you know, but <laughs> I mean, it, not only that, but they're also like, yo, come in here and have a loaf of bread and a glass of beer. And do you want to stay at my house? And I just picked some figs. And you know what I mean? Like people are so generous when you're on a bike because they want to care for you because you're vulnerable, you're exposed and you're, you're open and you have this like vulnerability and this sincerity about you that really people respond to, um, that they want to be part of that adventure for you. You know, they want to help, uh, which made the, the journey really special. I think in the end I ended up biking through like 
I honestly don't even know. I had probably like close to 12 countries, eight or 12 countries. And everywhere I went, it was it was like that more or less, with the exception of Croatia. People were a little grumpy there. <laughs> but I still met some cool ones. But um, that, so yeah. I'm, I'm imagining you didn't bike to Croatia from the States. You... No, I flew I flew to Rome. <laughs> but the, the, the exact trajectory was I think I rode from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And then I rode from, I took a train and then I rode from St. Louis to Cincinnati. And then I hitched out to Pennsylvania because I didn't want to ride in Appalachia anymore. And uh, flew from my family's place in Philadelphia to Rome in Italy. And then I rode from Rome to Zurich across the Alps and then turned around and rode back across the Alps from Zurich to Athens. And then I flew from Athens, Greece to Japan and I rode around Japan for a month. Wow. Uh, just kind of hung out there. Your first time in all those countries or? It was my first time in every country that I went to. Um, yeah, without exception. I don't think I've been to any of them before. I'd been to Germany once and I, but not that part. I'd never been to like Southern Germany and Bavaria and stuff before. Same bike? Yeah, same bike the whole time. Uh, I wow. still have the bike. I actually shipped it back uh, from from Tokyo. I had a friend from California meet me in Japan and rode with him for a month. And then I sent the bike back with him and continued with a backpack through Southeast Asia and then on to Central America and Latin America. And were you a big cyclist before this? And Yeah, yeah. I, it was a big part of my life in the Bay Area. And part of why it was hard to leave is like I was biking, you know, 18 miles every day to and from work through Golden Gate Park over the bridge. Just San Francisco is such an epic bike city. Um, and a lot of my weekends, I was doing little tours, you know, up to Napa or kind of down the coast or something like that. So I had a lot of the gear already. I had some riding experience, but nothing like riding. I mean, I was riding 50 miles a day for the better part of nine months straight. Wow. You know what I mean? It was it was a whole nother level <laughs> of, of physicality. Um and actually, a big part of it was what I remember you originally wanted to talk about was some some foraging stuff, too, on here. Yes. And that was a huge part of my journey there as well, was like I was foraging food. <laughs> so I was like picking stuff I would see on the side of the road or in people's you know gardens at the edge of their property. Like It was a big like part of that for me because I wanted to be able to connect to the places as deeply as I could which part of that for me is like eating what you're finding and engaging with like kind of the gifts of the land and whatever's in season. I think it's like a real, like, like a sense of place. What are the, I don't know the expression in French. It's like mise-en-scene or something like that. Like the sense where it's like you are where you are in the specific elements of your environment. There's like a multi-sensory experience to that. And a big part of that is food. And yeah. um, that was, that was huge for me in that journey. Uh, was really being able to do that. And I also, I created like a little hashtag um, as a joke for my friends who were still in sales. I was tagging all my posts with always be foraging uh, because of the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, yeah. that famous scene with Alec, Alec Baldwin, ABC, always be closing. I was like, no, nah, I'm changing this narrative in my life. ABF, always be foraging. <laughs> Just switching yeah. it up, man. It's such an amazing skill to have. When we went on that hike, you immediately spotted a mushroom and were so excited you were so excited about it you were like wow and you knew mm -hmm. you were just like i know nothing about foraging um or, or any of that stuff so how did you get into that and yeah talk talk to me a little bit about that experience in your life yeah i i'm infatuated with mushrooms and another maxim i like to live by is find what you love and give it away 
And that's one of the best things about foraging mushrooms is like, you feel great giving them away because you got it for free. You found this fungal bounty. So to just laying there in the woods, you know, it's like the gifts of mother earth just spread across the ground, like an Easter egg hunt. And you get to like share it with people and share your enthusiasm around it. And I got into it kind of by luck and just circumstance. Um, I was living in the Marin Headlands. Do you know where that is in San Francisco? It's like right across the the Golden Gate Bridge in Marin. There's this beautiful park. Um, and there's some housing out there that I got hooked up with because of a job. My neighbor was a biologist and she brought over uh, a tray of cookies to a potluck we had that were made with a mushroom called candy caps. Still to this day, one of my favorites, they have a smell just like maple syrup. It's ridiculous. And when you dry them and bake them, your whole house smells like these cookies. It smells like that sweet kind of indescribable maple aroma. And um, yeah, I was immediately like, where'd you get that? And when are you taking me? (laughs) When she told me they were made with mushrooms, I didn't even believe it. And after going out with her and foraging a few times and just getting a taste of how exciting it was to literally go on this treasure hunt through the forest and like find all these goodies like out there, I was already a big hiker and a big nature freak. I used to collect like bird's nests and pine cones when I was a kid. So sort of fit with this natural curiosity and admiration of nature that I already had. But then you combine that with like, now it's free food and drugs. And it's sort of like this, I was also really into Pokemon. So it felt like hunting Pokemon. This is like the original Pokemon Go, if you will, you know, just going out into the forest and finding your favorite creature that, you know, is in this particular location at a particular time of year. It had that magic of like right place, right time. Again, kind of that sense of place energy to it that I connected with really readily. And It's also something that involves a lot of like nerdy attention to detail, which is another thing I love is like, because you can, if you're not certain of your ID, like, you know, there's a joke in mushroom hunting. It's like, you need to be certain of your ID and you need to be right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Because the consequences are like, you can, you can, you can die. You can kill yourself. You can kill your friends if you put the wrong thing in your soup. Uh, So it's, and I don't say that to be like, you know, hyperbolic it's it it happens yeah people do get sick and poison themselves from from hunting mushrooms so there's a sense of there's some some risk and uh, there's another kind of saying like no risk no magic right like that there's there's sort of skin in the game here and uh it can be really fun to play with those set of conditions out in the forest learning about your environment learning what's in season learning how the land around you works and we understand so little about fungi they're a mm-hmm. huge mystery to us because what most people don't realize is that the mushroom you see on the ground is actually just one tiny part of the organism. It's kind of like the pear on a pear tree, except the tree part is like those little white kind of fuzzy things underground called mycelium that you don't even see most of the year. They're invisible, doing their thing in the forest. And then occasionally when conditions are right, they'll pop up that fruiting body, the mushroom. But the organism itself is called a fungus. And that's what's kind of doing its thing in the background. And we don't even really see it most of the time. And if you're digging in your yard and you pull up some mycelium, you can't even tell what it is unless you do DNA analysis on it, unless it's directly connected to a mushroom that's coming out of the ground. So they're difficult to study. Science doesn't understand them a lot, but they have such an incredible place in the animal kingdom 
in the forest. I mean, you've probably heard them described as like the internet of the forest, right? Mm-hmm, I know, mm-hmm. like Paul Stamets blew all these people's minds when he went on Joe Rogan's podcast and was talking about it, right? It's like, and yeah. everybody, everybody sent me that episode. And I was like, yeah, I, I know, I get it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but it, they're really doing something incredible out there and we understand so little of it. And so I feel like when you're out hunting mushrooms, you get to engage with this whole secret world, uh, this interconnected part of the natural web of life that we're in. And uh, yeah, it could just, it's so much fun. And you can do it like all times of year in, in different places. I mean, with the exception of like really heavy snow, mushrooms are pretty much out anywhere else. I mean, I found them in the desert. I found them in the dead of winter on a warm day. I found them in, I, I hunted mushrooms in every country I traveled to uh, and found something interesting every time. Amazing. When you when you first started off, did you go out with like a field guide or something or a little mm-hmm. like a cheat sheet or, or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you're interested in getting into it, it really pays to connect to people who know something about the mushrooms. There's several really great field guides about it. Like David Aurora's got one called All the Rain Promises and More, which is kind of like the classic text. It's also filled with tons of nerdy mushroom humor, which people will enjoy. But the book isn't going to be enough to to give you the confidence in your ID. I started out by going out again with my friend who was a biologist, my neighbor, and also joining like local mycology societies and going on forays and going on kind of walks with experts. And I don't even think I ate anything I picked on my own for the first like two or three years I went out and hunted because you need to use all of your senses to identify a mushroom. You want to hold it in your hands. What's the texture of the flesh like? Does it Is it stringier? Does it break easy? Is it chalky or is it kind of like sticky? You know, did the caps change color when you can observe the mushroom three or four times on like a dry day or a wet day? Like the mushrooms will actually be able to tell you the weather report, right? If you know what you're looking at, if the caps dry and cracked, that might not be what that mushroom looks like, that just might be it didn't rain recently, right? So you need a couple at-bats to be able to have the sensitivity to notice that, or you need to be able to go out with somebody who's seen this mushroom a hundred times and can tell you, oh, that's what we're looking at, right? Knowing how to take a spore print, knowing that you can like identify the mushroom based on the color of its spores, right? Knowing to look for gills or pores or other features to help identify it. And honestly, one of the most important things is knowing your trees, if you want to hunt mushrooms, you need to know what trees they grow with, because a lot of them grow in the association with specific types of trees. Mm-hmm. So learning tree identification is a part of it. Um, but that's what I I started out with, was going out with the San Francisco Mycological Society and some of my friends who are already into it, and just kind of gaining confidence by repeated exposure. And I think once you've held a mushroom in your hand and you felt its texture, you've smelled it, um, you know, you've played with it a little bit, you saw where it was growing, you can even take a piece and put it in your mouth. And this might sound scary to people, but you can literally, you can taste a small amount of any mushroom. As long as you chew it and spit it out, you don't swallow it. Even a deadly poisonous mushroom is safe to do that with. And it's an important part of identifying it because you might not want to, even if it's an edible one and it maybe it's got something growing around it that's making it taste bitter, you want to know that before you pull 10 pounds of it out of the woods and take it home and ruin your pasta with it. Mm. So so you can always nibble a little bit of a mushroom and it's like, okay, is it sour? Is it sweet? Is it peppery? As long as you rinse your mouth and spit it out, it's okay. It's not like poisonous plants like poison ivy where you wouldn't even want to touch it. You're going to get hurt. Mushroom. Okay. There's no mushroom out there that is poison enough to hurt you just by touching it. It's always okay. safe to pick them. And okay, it's even cool. safe to nibble them. That's good to know. I remember yeah. recently my girlfriend and I were on a hike and she was going to touch this mushroom that looked 
Like it was, it was colorful and it just looked weird to me and it looked mm -hmm. like slimy, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I was like, Ooh, that doesn't look good. I was like, I wouldn't touch it. You know? All right. right. So that's good to know. That's good to know that, well, you know, yeah, you might not want to touch it because it's slimy, right? Which is fine. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking it was maybe poisonous. That's how little I know. But I'm glad that you're here to to explain these things. I I know you're probably still riding a high from the Telluride Mushroom uh, Festival. Yeah. How was how was that for you? Yeah, I was out there a few weeks ago. Um, it's a it's a really gratifying experience. I'm sure anybody who's really into something knows what it's like to be in a room with a bunch of other nerds who love the same thing. Yeah. Like if you're into cars and you go to like an auto show, if you're into anime and you go to a cosplay, you know, it's like it's like that type of energy of like everybody's here united by their passion for this one weird thing. Um, and the people who are into mushrooms are really cool. It's an interesting blend of like hardcore hippies and psychonauts and like very sincere scientists and like expert chefs and kind of culinary nerds. It's this strange confluence of like these people would never be in the same room, but for their love of fungi. So wow, it's got, yeah. it's got a cool energy about it for that reason. And of course it's Telluride, which is, you know, one of the premier mountain resorts of the world. I mean, it's such a gorgeous landscape. And yeah. I found it hard to balance my time between wanting to go to all these like amazing talks and cooking demonstrations and workshops and just like going out in the woods and just picking everything I could yeah. um, because the hunting down there is really good. And you're also with people who know way more than you. So like, I'm still very much an amateur, even though I've been doing this for like eight years, I still, it still takes me a, like a bit of practice to, to get into a new habitat, learn some new species and you have a chance at a conference like Telluride to go into the woods of people who have been living and picking for 35 years in the same place. So they yeah, know what, what are some, yeah. What are some new things that you learned? Um, I got, uh, several species off my bucket list this year. I got some of the, the, uh, Rocky mountain chanterelles, Cantarellas mm. rosicanus were out everywhere. They're so fragrant. They smell like apricots. Mm. Um, and they're interesting. You were talking about how the colors of mushrooms are really interesting and vivid that's another difference from some of the plants and animals their color doesn't indicate their toxicity so something like a yellow jacket is yellow is flashing like a warning sign to other animals like don't mess with me chanterelles like golden yellow and it's screaming please pick me i'm delicious <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a little bit different uh when it comes to mushrooms like i don't really think they care like they're just so right they're, they're their own species they're they their, have own, their own set of rules yeah. yeah they're their own phyla in the tree of life so there's plants animals and fungi so they're not plants or animals they have their own whole like trunk really on the tree of life that they're they're working with and they've been around so long that like you know these like intelligent hairless apes have been on their evolutionary timeline for so little that they're like they're they have no strategies in their reproduction or anything that involve us they're just like whatever y'all are okay cool pick me eat me no big deal um, but yeah, I, I got a lot of chanterelles. I got a really beautiful and distinctive mushroom called a, the common name is a hawkswing. The Latin name is Sarcodon imbricatus. And it's a really interesting mushroom. It's super distinctive. It's got a big scaly surface. You've probably seen it under pines out in around 8,000 feet in Colorado. They're really common. Mm. And if you pick them and flip them over, they have spines under them. It looks like a hedgehog. It's like prickly. Um, you cook it up, you fry it on slow in a cast iron pan with some butter about 30 minutes. It tastes like skirt steak, man. It's wow. so umami and like meaty, just the mouthfeel of it. Really interesting mushroom. 
Um, I got a lot of shrimp russula, which as the name implies, it's got a little bit of a seafood smell, but again, you cook it up and it's got this beautiful, like kind of red wine color to it. Like it cooks up with this really beautiful color, which you could use to color a rice dish or kind of add a splash to, to what you're making. Um, and again, just really crunchy, delicious kind of umami mushroom flavor. Uh, they have a molecule in it called glutamate, which is and monosodium glutamate, right, is MSG. It's responsible for that mouthfeel kind of umami taste that a lot of meaty dishes have. Mm. And mushrooms have that. So if you don't eat red meat or meat products in general, like me, I'm, a, I'm not a strict vegetarian, but I don't really eat red meat. And yeah. so for me to get that kind of mouthfeel in my food, it doesn't come from many places. And so if you're, you know, trying to have an earth-friendly diet, like eating more fungi is an awesome option because they will lend that flavor to a lot of dishes. So yeah, that was a lot. Yeah, of fun definitely. It's really special when you have a, a meaty umami mushroom like that that can mimic that kind of mouthfeel. It it's like. Yeah, I think if more people had access or knew or if it was more distributed in that way, we could definitely cut down on meat consumption because uh-huh. it really does offer that that kind of perfect substitute where you're not like, oh, this is lame. It's like, no, this is delicious. Yeah, it's not tofu. It doesn't feel like a right. compromise. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, and, and it offers a lot of the same nutrients that meat does too. Like what are the only non-animal sources of vitamin D in nature is mushrooms. Mm. Um, especially when you buy mushrooms, like those oyster mushrooms you get at the farmer's market, when the caps are kind of gray, when they've been exposed to UV light, they're super rich in vitamin D. So mushrooms Mm. that have been growing in the sun will have more vitamin D in them than those grown in darkness. Um, they have a lot of protein in them, right? A lot of essential vitamins. One of their roles in the forest is to accumulate kind of heavier elements in the soil. Like they're pulling in a lot of like just heavy metals, you know what I mean? Nitrogen and, uh, and, uh, it's another one, phosphorus there. I mean, Mm -hmm. everything, a boron, you know what I mean? Just whatever's Mm -hmm. in the soil, which also can make them dangerous uh, depending on where they're growing. So they're, they're what's called bioaccumulators. So as much as their nutrition comes from their ability to, to absorb nutrients in their environment, kind of denser atoms and pull them into an ecosystem, they're also pulling up like, you know, radioactive waste or whatever kind of like petrochemicals are in the ground. So like you want to be paying attention to that when you're picking where like I used to do this all the time when I was first starting out, I'd see mushrooms a lot for my car because they're growing on the side of the road. I would screech to a halt and run over to pick them. And if you're picking a mushroom that's growing on the downward slope of a drainage from a major road where there's a lot of oil slick and garbage running off it, you don't want to eat that mushroom. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's got all that shit in the flesh of the mushroom to the point where there's actually been studies about using mushroom species as bioremediators for toxic waste sites. Like you can put them in an environment and they will soak that stuff up and then you can just pick the mushrooms and, and then they become like the toxic waste that you can store somewhere else. But then the site itself, the ambient environment has those materials slowly removed by the fungus. So wow. expert bioaccumulators, which makes them great sources of dense nutrition for humans and also kind of like a, a caution sign of like, be very aware of the environment you're harvesting in because it's going to have that stuff in it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Like a sponge. That's, that's very amazing. Much so, yeah. Yeah. That I've heard so many different uses for mushrooms. I remember there was a, a company that I saw a little while ago that was making 
all of its uh, boxes and products out of mm-hmm. out of mushrooms. Yeah, and Mica just, works. I know some people. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. What are some other like? What are some interesting things that are happening right now with with mu- with mushrooms that you're aware of? Um, you know, interesting new kind of like uses for them. Yeah, well, that packaging company you mentioned is a cool one. They're trying to to use like mycelium and and bio waste, like shredded, you know, plant products to make replacements for styrofoam packaging. Um, there's other people using them to make leathers, uh, so you can use the mycelium. You can dry it in a certain way to make it into a leather. Uh, what innovative product I saw recently is like a green burial option. You can get a you can get a coffin made out of mycelium that will like nice. digest your body into compost right quick, which is going to oh. be in my will for sure. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for it's sure. A cool idea. Um, there's a lot of people kind of rediscovering the medicinal technology that a lot of earth-based and you know kind of older traditions have been working with for for centuries especially eastern medicine has a deep relationship with mushrooms for some reason like anglo-saxon western culture thinks they're all poison um but the popularity of things like reishi and lion's mane and chaga and cordyceps like these might be familiar names because you've seen them in your instagram ads or heard about them somewhere recently because it's like this new rediscovery of how helpful these compounds can be. Turkey tail is another one that's the really good immunomodulator. Um, and they all have different, you know, uses, but like there's some exciting research around it. Like the lion's mane can help protect, protect the myelin, which is the sheath that your neurons use to protect themselves, the dendrites of your neurons. Mm. Um, you know, reishi is an incredible antioxidant, helps like all kinds of medicinal benefits. There's like hundreds of active compounds in these things. Cordyceps give you like a lot of energy and focus. I take a cordyceps tincture. Like, you know, it's just like a kind of a caffeine supplement if you're trying to, to it doesn't have the same effect. It's definitely doesn't feel as strong as a cup of coffee, but it can help with something like that if you're trying to reduce caffeine intake. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm excited by how the conversation seems to be shifting to acceptance of these things as a as real allies instead of like kind of this sort of blanket assumption that they're all bad or like we'll only eat the really boring button mushrooms which for the record uh button mushrooms cremini mushrooms and portobello mushrooms are all the exact same mushroom it was a marketing ploy uh to kind of sell a different product they're all agaricus bisporus the only difference is crumini mushrooms are cultivated with uv light so the caps get darker button mushrooms the white ones are cultivated in total darkness and a portobello is just a mature crumini wow so don't be fooled oh, okay. <laughs> you're the supermarket Damn. yeah I'm, I'm always like ooh, gotta get those crumini's I they're like good the they're, they're yeah. well, and they have a little more vitamin d in them right because they've been exposed to some of that that yeah. uv light yeah, so, I've been making I've been making a, a something I call a cremini panini. That which sounds is, excellent. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's actually I stole the idea from a place in in Denver called uh, Beatbox that's no longer around, but they made all uh, vegan <coughs> sandwiches and desserts and yeah. gluten free stuff. And so, yeah. but yeah, I, I was like, oh wow, this is phenomenal. I'm gonna like do it myself with these cremini mushrooms because. You know, I, I eat meat, but when you get uh, the mushrooms and portobellos are great for that too. Yeah. And it's like really this thick, you know, it has substance to it, it and it's, mm. it fills you up. Um, yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you a couple questions about th- some things that you just mentioned. One being uh, sort of how the the mushrooms weren't really looked at in a favorable light. Like we know why with psychedelic 
psychoactive mushrooms, right? Like psilocybin, psilocybin yeah. cubensis. Like we, we get the we get the gist of that a little bit. But what about other kinds of mushrooms? Is were they all just lumped in the same category? Were they seen as just poison? What, what what's the deal with the that perception from the Anglo-Saxon, uh, as you mentioned, way? That's an interesting question. You know, I'm not a student of that specific cultural history to be able to say like why, like you know. Eastern, or I'm sorry, why Western European cultures in particular are scared of them. Eastern European cultures love them, right? Yeah. So I'm not really sure how we got to that place, but I'm imagining that, <clears throat> like, in, in if I was writing the story here or just like looking at the cultural mythology of mushrooms, it seems that like their mysteriousness like kind of breeds mistrust, right? Like suddenly there's no there's no mushrooms there, and then suddenly they're everywhere, and it's like oh my god, where did these come from? Or like they kind of come out in the fall, like you know they have this association with death and transition in the way they perform their function in the ecosystem, and mm. I think our cultural in general has a really underdeveloped and immature relationship with death. And so right. organisms that have a more integrated relationship with death are viewed with mistrust because they're part of the death process and death is spooky and no and bad. And like, of course, that's not true. Death is just the polarity of birth. It's just another part of the cycle. And that's one of the deep kind of spiritual associations I feel with mushrooms in general, not just psychoactive ones. They are a bridge between the living and the dying. They recycle nutrients from dead matter and make it available to new life. So their role is like as a, as a recycler. They're the regenerative species at that margin between death and life. They're one of the first to take advantage of that process and make something available to the rest of the ecosystem. But I don't think our culture views death that holistically. They view death as this kind of like moment of judgment where you go to heaven or hell or this like one-way trap door that you fall through and like the lights go out forever. And so, of course, anything that participates in the moment of death is viewed with a bit of aversion because there's fear around death. So then there's fear around things that seem related to death. And so I think that's where we get our general cultural squeamishness with mushrooms. In my view, I, again, I haven't studied the history of why. <laughs> that's a good view, man. I like I, it. Yeah, I think that makes it. sense to me. I, yeah. I think that's it. It's, it's, it's yeah. as simple as like, they're kind of spooky, they're mysterious, they're associated with death and dying. And, uh, you know, a lot of them can kill, can kill you. So right. it's not right. without uh, some basis in well-founded reality. Um, and they also, I think, you know, rot is kind of inconvenient, especially like if you're a colonizing society trying to build houses out of wood in an area. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, okay, mushrooms are inconvenient when they're rotting your house, when they're killing your garden. Like right. not a lot of them are, but some are aggressive pathogens that, you know, destroy building materials. They'll like fungal fungal or mold will rot like crops and things like that, right? So so I think that there's some some things that mushrooms do that aren't like convenient to human society and I just don't think we're taking the good with the bad. Maybe we're just kind of lumping them all in this, okay, fungus bad, you know, fruit good thing. Uh, that seems to be at least part of the story. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, you know, definitely feeling that that is uh, a part of it. I think that with, with fungi, uh, it's such a, a massive kingdom. And, and like you said, like we're just starting to mm, queendom. Such queendom a massive, is the preferred term, <laughs> such a, su such a massive queendom. That's right. Uh, that, that, uh, that's good. I, 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 I like that, that shift because yeah. 
it's too often that we say uh, the the sort of like patriarchal yeah. uh, terms. Yeah. yeah. So the 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 queendom is so massive that it's. But now it's it seems more and more people are interested in them, studying them. Uh, I myself, I take you know lion's mane, reishi, uh, turkey tail, chaga almost every day in a smoothie. Mm-hmm. Um, you just showed me a tincture. Is it better to have it in a tincture form or is, or if you have it in powder, what's like the best uh, bioavailable mm. way to have uh, mushroom supplements, do you think? Yeah, here's here's another spot where I'm probably going to get a lot of response in the comments telling me I'm wrong or I don't know what I'm talking about because I think right. there's a- Get your there's, keyboards ready, folks. Right. <laughs> so I think there's still, um, there's some differing opinions on this, right? Or like if you're taking a mushroom extract, is it better to use the mycelium or the fruit body, right? Because a lot of mushroom medicinal mushroom companies, what they'll do is they'll grow the mycelium on a substrate like brown rice, and then they'll just dry it and powder it. And you're actually buying like, you know, 70, 80% of that product by weight is just dried rice powder with the mycelium in it. So there's, there's a lot, and there's differing scientific research that demonstrates, oh, there's more bioactive compounds in this part of the mushroom than that part and blah, blah, blah. You can go down like a crazy Reddit rabbit hole around this subject. Um, but I do know that mushrooms have a, a, a material in them called chitin, which is the same stuff that's in your fingernails and in lobster shells. It's a very rigid and indigestible molecule. And uncooked mushroom, mushrooms use it to maintain their structure. Um, and so it's threaded throughout the, the fruit body in particular. So if you have one of those and you're eating it raw, or if you've just dried it and powdered your mushroom, that chitin is still going to be there. And it's going to have locked up a lot of the bioactive compounds. And so I always recommend like having uh, any preparation of mushrooms, if you want to get the maximum benefit from it, have it cooked. And that's why I take a tincture because typically a tincture will be done with a double extraction to extract the water-soluble compounds and the alcohol-soluble compounds. And the water extraction involves boiling. Um, so typically they'll, they'll break up the mushroom really fine or they'll powder it and then they'll boil it and then they'll soak that like leftover stuff in alcohol or the reverse, you know, the order. I don't know if this is as important, but that's why I, I do that instead of powders, because a powder might just be a dried raw fruit body, which will still have the chitin in it and might not be as bioavailable. Mm, um, but again, okay. there's there's probably somebody who would have a very well reasoned argument against that case because you know mushroom folks like to nerd out on their data, and this is still being kind of figured out by our community and our culture right now in this moment, right? But there's mm-hmm. tons of ways to prepare them. The the truth is there's probably active ingredients in what you're taking that are bioavailable to you. And any choice in how you take it is maybe maximizing a different part of the spectrum of value because these organisms have so many beneficial compounds in them. A powdered preparation in your smoothie might give you some of the protein, right? Or versus like a tincture might give you some of the like bioflavonoids or, you know, something else that's in there that's going to give you uh, a bit of a different benefit. I don't even know. Yeah. If, I don't even know if bioflavonoids is a word. I might have made that up. Yeah, it is. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. It's like, I guess yeah. I, and I, I'm, I'm sort of being cautious here because I just came from this conference with people who were like so freaking smart. And like, and, and I mean, I also heard like a million pieces of data that I'm still integrating into my brain. And I'm like, did I use the right word there? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right. Bioflavonoids are found in the rind of green citrus fruits in rose hips, black currants. They've been used in alternative medicine. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Yeah. There's, yeah, bi- it, yeah, bioflavonoid. There you go. There you go. Boom. So, but That's I mean, a there's thing. a there's a ton of different compounds in there that, um, again, some are soluble in alcohol, some are soluble in water. Uh, and they all do different types of things in the body, right? They might work with a specific protein synthesis. They might work with, uh, you know, a part of the brain, the liver, the gut, the blood. Um, so your preparation will impact the delivery of that, those different compounds. But ultimately, I think any way you're taking them is better than not taking them at the end of the day. Mm. Um, and just doing a little bit of research into what your specific goals are. Um, and also understanding some risks too, right? Like chaga is very popular these days. Um, it's not actually a mushroom, it's a sclerotia, which is a massive tissue that the fungus uses to preserve nutrients. So a mushroom, again, is the fruiting body of a fungus, but chaga is not technically a mushroom, it's a sclerotia. So it's sclero- It's like a kind of like a tumor, actually, in a way. Hmm. It's, like, it's like storing nutrients. It's a dense collection of material that the mushroom is, the fungus the- is grows out of the mycelium it it grows out of a tree actually it colonizes a beech tree it's i think a mild parasite on on beaches and there's concern with chaga because it's not harvested sustainably so those sclerotia might take seven to ten years to reach a harvestable size and because of the wild popularity of it people are just going through the birch forests and climbing up trees and hacking off everything they can find Uh, so it's it's got some ethical concerns around its harvest and you know, if you're taking it every day or a large amount of it, uh, it can also precipitate um, like blood calcium collecting in your kidneys and it can give you kidney stones if you're prone to that, mm. right? So like there's there's things about it that like you want to understand all of the goals you have for your health when you engage with any new, you know, air quote here, treatment, right? You want to you understand what's my specific goals for my health? How would this thing help me or hinder me? And just kind of do a little bit more curious investigation instead of like, oh, it's the elixir of life. The Chinese have been taking reishi for 3,000 years. I'm going to take like, do your homework. Find out what's going to make it meaningful and important to you. And then, you know, choose your protocol accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially with now that there's so many different companies that are like, hey, try our mm-hmm. mushrooms and try yeah, this tincture and try this powder, mushroom coffee and, yep. you know, all kinds of things. Um, yeah, that there's uh, sometimes the, the the packaging or the labeling, it just kind of convinces you that, oh, these, this this is good, but always do your homework and see what's, yeah. uh, what's going to be the best. Yeah. And I mean, I love a lot of those companies. I drink that stuff too. It's great. And it's, it's not necessarily bad for you. I just, I like being kind of a voice of reason in the marketing frenzy uh, because I do see it happening. Right. I mean, I've seen psilocybin microdoses marketing it marketed as a weight loss supplement because anybody who's tripped mushrooms know you don't really want to eat food. Right. But like they're selling that to people now. And I'm like, oh my God, no. Like, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, I guess you won't want to eat if you're tripping all day, but is that really an effective way? Do you want to market that as a weight loss supplement to people? Like, and and that's why I want to just be like a bit of a please decide for yourselves type voice in that conversation because there's yeah. incredible benefits to it, but it matters how you use it and what you use it for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, do, do, you, uh, do you think that like now – we have, I don't know, you might see the decriminalized mushrooms poster back here. Uh, Now that things are sort of opening up a little bit more, shout out to Fungi Academy, one of our sponsors who you are familiar with. Hell yeah. Uh, 
and and growing your own mushrooms and just people learning more about mushrooms are you, and now that we're talking about the, this kind of marketing aspect things coming online like just the other day i got a uh, an email from someone that wants to be a sponsor and they're uh selling microdoses and i i asked my friend i was like is this legal and he's like no no <laughs> he's like it's probably they're probably just doing it until they get caught so it's kind of like the wild west is opening up again yeah but the, at the same time the science the research the culinary like everybody's getting into it more now uh where do you see it going where do you hope to see uh, it going i guess it would be easier to say what i hope than try to pretend i have a crystal ball about where, yeah. where, where it is going um what i would love to see happen is to have these, these what I would consider to be sacred allies given to us by the planet integrated into our culture in a healthy way. And I know that's fairly broad and maybe a big lift, um, but I really do see, I see personally that in psychedelic mushrooms, I see the the life of our great, the greater non-human life on the planet being able to communicate with us directly. That's been a very consistent experience I've had me in too. a mushroom yeah. space. And so I think it's a great way to kind of rematriate ourselves into the natural environment and rebuild our connection with nature because we're lost. We've lost that bridge. In a lot of ways, humans are living in this illusion that we're somehow separate from all that is. And so mushrooms can be an incredible ally in the rediscovery of that process. Like I'm even getting goosebumps saying that because it feels so true to me. That has to be part of why they're here. And how I would love to see us re-engage is to, um, to allow access to these that, again, suit the goals of the participants, that suit the protocol that those people want. Coming back to that, we were just talking about, about using medicinal mushrooms. I think psychedelic mushrooms should be allowed to be used in a similar way. Like if you want to use them to heal from trauma and therapy and you want to sit with a clinician in a like kind of westernized, medicalized scenario that makes you feel psychologically safe and you have the support that you're used to, you should be able to do that. If you want to take mushrooms like with a safe dosing protocol with people you trust without a professional there out in a safe environment on a private property, like you should be able to do that. Right. If you want to be able to have access to it in order to, you know, like, I don't know, pick your your end goal here. Right. You should be able to have access to it in a way that suits your goals and your intentions for that medicine. I even think it's OK to take a small dose of mushrooms that's well within your comfort zone and go enjoy a concert or a party with your friends. If it's not your first time and you know what you're getting into, you can go ahead and safely use that trusting your own best judgment and your sourcing and your setting to, to know you're going to be able to handle it. So like, I don't even think recreational mushrooms should be illegal. I think there should be safeguards on it. I think people should know what they're getting into. You definitely shouldn't take mushrooms for the first time and go to a concert just to see what it's like, right? You should do that in a safe place where your friends are supporting you or you have the support of a professional or a guide. But ultimately I see a plurality of uses and access points being the best way to work with it. And also stuff that honors, you know, some of the land-based traditions that have carried the wisdom of this stuff for so long. I don't think, you know, the tradition or lineage of Maria Sabina or these like, you know, um, kind of old school, uh, again, land-based like traditions are the only way to do it, right? And I wouldn't want to fetishize those cultures to say that they have a monopoly on truth when it comes to using sacred mushrooms. But like whatever you're doing 
if it's involved in that lineage, needs to honor and respect those customs and protocols, and you should be paying those communities or whoever's available to you in that work to support it. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't want it to be just one or the other. I wouldn't want it to be, oh yeah, only you can only go to like an ayahuasquero or like a you know mescalero who has this like experience or this you know like mushroom shaman has this experience. Or you can only go to a licensed therapist who's regulated drugs by the FDA and graduated with a degree from this or that university and has this medical training. Or you could only do it with the support of like you know, a clinician or a therapist or a guide, you know, even a coach, right? People have approached me about it as, as, as a coach. And I'm like, well, that's not really, you know, directly in my wheelhouse, but like people are looking for ways to get this into their life. And I would see an ideal situation that's inclusive of all those different avenues of support and process that people want to work with these in. And I don't know exactly what that looks like from a policy perspective. perspective. I mean, it's probably quite messy. Um, but we have a lot of good models, right? And there's a lot of really smart people in the legalization movement. I know several of them. And they're thinking about this stuff. They're thinking about how do we make this legalization process different <clears throat> than what it's been before, even different than cannabis, right? Because yeah. even cannabis was co-opted into this like capitalistic shit show. Right, um, right. And, and it didn't do any remediation to the harm that's been caused by the drug war. And right. I think the people who are involved in the legalization of psychedelics really want this to be different. They mm. want this to be an opportunity for healing, for reconciliation, for like reparation of the wrongs that have been done by the drug war. And they wanted to honor the traditions that have carried this stuff. They want it to be inclusive of, you know, the IV, I was at a talk at Telluride, but they're like, how are we going to train facilitators of color? How are we going to train indigenous people? How are we going to train, you know, black, brown, Hispanic, non-English speaking people, whatever it is to meet the needs in their communities, right? So that it's not just like some white dude who went to, you know, Jamaica or Costa Rica and did a mushroom retreat now wants to come back and kind of like be of service, right? Which is very well intentioned, but might not be the place for you. And, right. and so the, mush, the mushroom movement and the legalization movement is having these conversations about how do we do this right? How do we not make this cannabis 2.0? Because like, I mean, you've seen it, right? Like I just read an article the other day. They have they have a billion grams of marijuana sitting in storage in Canada right now that they can't sell because all of the early cannabis companies that went public, they just got venture capital financing based on the amount of floor space they had in their grow room, assuming the demand side was going to function just like vegetables, right? Where it's like, oh, well, we'll just be able to sell as much as we can grow. Guess what? 60% of the marijuana market still black market and they haven't figured that out yet. So the demand wow. never showed up. And now we have this enormous amount of wasted product that was probably grown using coal power under high power fluorescent lights that's sitting in warehouses in Canada. It's like, we don't want to repeat those mistakes. And I'm starting to see some of it in the legalization space. Like some companies, I just heard of a company that applied for an intellectual property patent on using soft furniture in therapy sessions. I see you, Compass Pathways. Like, what are you about, Wait, dude? Really? Yes. They did that? Yeah, they applied uh, I for that put patent. It past them. Jesus. They applied for that patent, right? So, like, you're seeing this happen. You're seeing, like, ways this could go pretty wrong right. um, and a few ways that it could go right. And in my opinion, the way for it to go right would be a, a model that allows access that's not gated by an ivory tower, that's not gated by a certain professional framework that doesn't overburden a certain cultural lineage with an exclusive access to a process or medicine that's going to kind of, again, kind of recreate a repeat of what happened when Gordon Wasson went down to Mexico in the 50s and 60s and destroyed those villages, right? Probably, if you're talking about legalizing all psychedelics, things that have special treatment for 
um, psychedelics that have particular ritual meaning to certain groups, like peyote for Native Americans, right, shouldn't be included in a blanket legalization access to right, protect right. those cultures. Um, and empowering people to do it for themselves, right? Giving people resources and training, relying on the pioneering work of people like James Fadiman and others who understood set and setting and the importance of personal and psychological safety and just kind of, you know, drinking water and playing good music, right? basically, when you're doing yeah. this. Um, yeah. and, and giving people like anybody who's engaging in this, making sure that it's equal parts access to safe, clean product and medicine, and also good research and knowledge and wisdom to empower them to have that experience safely for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. If we could do that successfully, I think we'd find a way to really work with this stuff. Uh, and from a policy standpoint, I'm going to be really interested to see what comes out because I'm involved in the movement. I'm figuring out how to support and lend my time and energy to it. And I'm paying attention to, okay, what's the conversation sound like? Is this like, we want a, a go-to-market strategy or do we want something that's gonna be supportive of a number of different processes and goals uh, and, and community-based, ideally? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's the best way is, you know, I, it's it's almost as if the mistakes that we made in the past, we're trying to, plug these, you know, abundant free things into this like commercialized model. Mm -hmm. uh, we're trying to plug it in, like we're trying to take that, that intelligence and plug it into the current model and just keep running on the same programming. Yep. Now we have to sort of just facilitate the intelligence of the fungi and say, okay, we'll work with you in sort of a symbiotic relationship here, yeah. learning as we're going from your intelligence and our intelligence to combine something that, that works in a reciprocal way. I think know, that's a, a good way to put way. it. Yeah. yeah. And, and kind of listening to where these things feel like they're applicable, right? I, people are doing great research in treating alcoholism with this stuff. Yeah. So that might look differently than somebody who's on a spiritual quest or journey. You know what yeah. I mean? To rebuild their right. connection with their personal understanding of God or the universe or whatever. Sure. Yeah. You Someone know? with cluster headaches or something. Yeah. Or, there's some crazy know. stuff around that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many inroads mm -hmm. too. So, you know, really education is empowerment and it get it gets rid of that unknown, the fear, the mysterious. It's, mm -hmm. hey, this particular mushroom is good for this or this dosage in this setting yep. can be really good at yep. uh, for someone who's terminal, end of life, you know, yep. the, those anxiety, things that John Hopkins right? studies. Yeah, yeah. Coming back to where we started with this, or like, I think our culture does such a terrible job with death. And I think for many of it, it feels like we're on a dying planet right now. So there's kind mm -hmm. of like this existential feeling of death that's sort of in the air, especially after COVID, all the shit we've been through, right? Yeah. Like there's, and still going through, this is not over. Right. Um, so yeah. I think there's a, yeah, there's an opportunity for death anxiety and understanding our greater place in the universe, right? That can be part of this. And that might not fit into a, a hyper-medicalized model, right? Uh, of, of how these things can work. Yeah, there's a right. lot of little mycelial nodes and points of entry here. Um, and I, I do think it's coming. Um, I think that we're closer to this point than we've ever been as a culture to finding ways to to work with these and be good stewards for these uh, substances, these medicines, these allies in our culture. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people see the trap of what I think Michael Pollan has called lab coat shamanism. Um, mm. I think he described it pretty well. And, and I think... You know, people are really curious about this. I mean, across generations, across incomes, across cultural identities, 
uh, Colin's done great work for the movement in that the how to change your mind. I had more people ask me about mushrooms after that book than maybe ever. And then following up with that with Fantastic Fungi, um, which if anybody hasn't seen, go out and see it. It's on Netflix now. You can watch it for free. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, on the, I mean, if you have Netflix, I guess you can watch it for free. Um, yeah. But some of the people in that space are like, they're speaking to one of the truly unique things about the mushroom movement that I don't see anywhere else in society, which is that it's led by amateurs, the real wizards and maestros and experts out there. I mean, Paul Stamets for a long time was working as an amateur. He's like an old logger. People like William Padilla Brown, who's just like Michael Symbio. I mean, he's just oh, out yeah. there. Doing, he's yeah. a citizen scientist and he's a pioneer. He's at the cutting edge of this work. He was right. one of the first people to publish a guide for cordyceps cultivation in English. And I bet every medicinal mushroom company you buy cordyceps from probably got a spore from William or bought his guide. And he's mm. a high school dropout from central Pennsylvania who just loved mushrooms and got into it. Right. And yeah. so like this, one of these few places where you don't need access to this, like, big kind of hierarchy of 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 training or education or like you know pay gated resources to become like a hugely impactful pioneer in your community you can grow mushrooms on spent coffee grounds and feed your family right so there's this, there's this radical democratization of access that i think mushrooms naturally lend themselves to that makes me really optimistic, right? That even if we did have regulations in place around the stuff that didn't meet specific goals for community-based work, like people will be out there growing them anyway, right? Because they're they're so they're such good allies in that sense. They're, they're especially psilocybin mushrooms. They're stupid easy to grow. I the cubans, oh, yeah. like cubensis are one of the most forgiving strains for a beginning cultivator, and I often wonder if that's by accident. You know, it's like yeah, I'm like really. Yeah, they, it's it's like you were saying before with the uh, the mushroom that smells like uh, apricots. It's like mm-hmm. like we want to be born. <laughs> they yeah, are we, begging. <laughs> yeah, we want to be born. We want to be eaten. We want to commune with you. Uh-huh. And I think that really is the key: is communing with the mushrooms in 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 a reciprocal way and learning the nature of how they operate and how they function. And we can learn a lot from that. The mm-hmm. multiple uses from them. So yeah, I I think that uh, the the future does look bright in that in that aspect, and and and, and even happening right now, you know, a lot uh, of it's, it's happening just, now. Yeah, it's it's really great, and and I I can't help but wonder the all the work that you do with coaching, how that is sort of maybe help. You know, you could probably say it better than me, but from the the, the thought thread that I'm running with here is that helping people kind of open up and increase their sort of capacity for emotional intelligence and spiritual awareness, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the love for mushrooms and foraging and the, the benefits that you get from that. It's sort of, and then also the biking and being out in nature, there's sort of this trifecta of, uh, you know, unfolding or like inc- being this kind of like incubator for a new model of, of being. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's that's necessary. I should say because uh, yeah. we can't just apply the mushrooms into the old paradigm. It has right. to be a new paradigm that's more expansive. Right. As, well, as, and now as, you're giving me an idea, maybe for like a workshop or something. I want to do once all this is legal. Like, oh, could we do like a biking and mushroom and blah blah blah? I don't know. But, yeah, that um, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> but I think to your, if I'm responding to your kind of question effectively, I'm not sure. But I do see the opportunity for. Uh, kind of like you said, like, I don't know if you use the word paradigm shift or not, but that's kind of what comes to mind. You can have that like in a personal way, 
when you're able to see something that you've been looking at for a long time in an entirely new light. And I think that's what mushrooms, especially psychedelic mushrooms, offer the opportunity to do. They don't, you don't see like, you know, pink elephants or like a bunch of weird shit that isn't there. You're looking directly at reality in its rawness and its depth and its realness. And you're able to see it in an entirely new light. And I do think that in in an ideal coaching process, we're able to, I, I say my coaching work has two key facets, which is insight and action. And you don't necessarily need mushrooms to to do that, right? But that does offer a kind of a, a quick um, way to to have that shift. As Michael Pollan used the metaphor in his book of like shaking the snow globe. So like mm-hmm. you have these conditioned tendencies that are cut in your mind, like these deep tracks in a, you can picture ski tracks going down a mountain and then you shake up the snow globe and the tracks kind of get flattened out again and you have a chance to cut some fresh lines. And so any process of insight works in a similar way where you can like, you don't have the the kind of gr- gravity, the inertia, or that the pull of conditioned tendencies and ways of thinking and being in the world. And you have a chance to maybe take a bit of a meta perspective to, to make a different choice and start to put energy and momentum into a new path, into a new track. And you're right, you're talking about how this is like, even culturally thinking about how we integrate this stuff, it doesn't lend itself well to traditional models, to these well-worn tracks. Right, even something like psilocybin therapy, it doesn't work like Prozac, where like you got to take a dose every day for a long time. And I, I'm probably going to annoy some people by saying this too, but I even think a lot of people that sell microdoses are relying too much on the old medical model of like you have to take a pill to feel better. Like you might take mushrooms once every five years and get the same benefit as you would from thinking that you're going to take like a, you know a quarter of a gram a day for a week, two days on, two days off. Right, like that to me sounds a lot like you know. Prozac or Zoloft or something like the 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 impact of the medicine is not dose dependent in that same way. You don't mm-hmm. need the chemical in your brain in order to feel the effects of what it offers you, because what it truly offers you is the perspective shift, is the right. chance to see yourself and your world differently. And I don't use psychedelics directly in my coaching work, but there's a corollary between those experiences that people can have that broaden their perspective and allow them to make different choices about their lives moving forward from that point. Yeah. So, which yeah, once you have that insight, then it just becomes a process of integration of okay, what actions now arise from the different beliefs or or ways of being that feel possible from this new place, right? And that's where the real work comes in. That's where I think like the growth happens between the sessions and coaching, and I think the growth happens after the journey with medicine because you need to take that back and start to apply it and start to think differently and and have different behaviors arise from your thoughts and intentions and ways of being and seeing the world. And then those behaviors over time will start to produce different results, you know, and that's where true transformation occurs for people. Yeah, well said. I was just about to say integration, and then you went right there. Yep, so perfect. Yep. Yeah. What 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 are some uh, who, like what kind of people come to you for coaching? What is there like a typical uh, kind of person or or a typical story that you get? So do you seem to draw in a particular kind of client? Yeah, I like the way you put that, right? Because I think coaching is a very like um, like. It's attraction, not promotion, right? Like it's it's not a business you can sell ads for on Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it do people a lot of people do find me, um, or are told about me by somebody that they know, and it tends to be people who feel themselves to be in a period of transition, 
in their lives and kind of where I was when we started this conversation, people who are sort of feeling that moment of like pull to something greater and they're not exactly sure like what that call means, but they know that they can't compromise anymore and they don't want to live anything else than a life fully aligned with their values, with their purpose. Um, or maybe they do know, maybe they've seen that goal on the distant horizon. They know what they want and they have no freaking clue how to get there. They don't even know how to take the first step. Right. And it's about building a bridge between those two places. So I say my, in shorthand, I say my coaching is purpose alignment coaching. Um, and I work with people in periods of transition in their lives, whether they're leaving a job, considering leaving a job, wanting to start a new business. Maybe they just got a divorce or they have some major piece of their identity that's shifting in their life. Maybe there's a gender transition or something else at play that's forcing them to rethink their position in the world uh, in their own life. And uh, yeah, a lot of my clients tend to be in those roles. So they're they're either wanting to start a small business, they're wanting to to do more work within their organization that has meaning and heart for them. Um, they're wanting to deepen their relationship with themselves or with other people. Uh, a huge portion of my work focuses on the tools of authentic relating, which we haven't even talked about yet. But there's a huge part of it that's around kind of like understanding your experience at a deeper level and communicating in an effective way. Um, and that sits kind of on top of the, the purpose and values alignment stuff uh, that's in the deeper layer. I, I, it's kind mm -hmm. of a long-winded. I should have a shorter answer to that question. You know, I'm in my head judging like, oh, yeah, if you were a good marketer, you'd have your elevator pitch nailed down. Like, it's so vast, though, that the scope well, of it Well, it sounds really... authentic to me, so yeah. that's good. Yeah, Good, because yeah. it's, it's, it's a beautiful process. I mean, I can't even tell you how, how honored I feel to be a part of that. Like when I talk about purpose alignment, like I'm really a product of my product in that way because I do the most purposeful thing I can imagine for a living now, uh, which is really serving others in that way. So it's it's something that just has a ton of heart and meaning for me, which I feel very, very blessed to be able to say that I do because I really worked hard for that. Like I had, I had a bit of a rough transition to this point, and I hope that part of what I do for others is make that process easier for them. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you talked about um, sort of having that inner knowing, but maybe feeling stuck or moving past it, like trying to get to that thing. You're not really sure how to get there, but you, but you feel it right. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then, and then your transition process was kind of rough. Was, would you consider that transition process or that feeling that you had, was that the period that you were on the bike? Was that like that period where you no. were exploring, searching? Okay. It was right before that. So it was mm -hmm. really kind of in the th two and a half to three years that I was dragging my feet, refusing to admit that I needed to burn my life to the ground. That was when that right. was, was uh, like, right, I had, right. I had some signs. It was like, this isn't for you, man. This isn't the path. This isn't the way. But I was just like, no. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. That's scary as fuck. I'm not doing that. Like there was, a, there was a very strong resistance for a while to admitting my full truth to myself, even when part of me knew it. And so mm -hmm. that's the moment where I think sometimes we benefit from a little support, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. cause it's kind of hard to believe it's that you like you leap and the net will appear. Like it's very, very hard to, to fully commit to that idea. Uh, and so I think help having somebody who can really see you and support you in that, uh, is just like, saves a ton of energy and time. It makes the process a little bit more um, exciting. Because for me, it was largely terrifying and painful for a long time. Uh, and then finally started to get enjoyable when I was actually riding the bike. And I was like, oh my God, I, I did the thing. 
you know, like, oh, you wow. made the jump. <laughs> yeah, made the you leap. made the leap. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. The realization that you tried to avoid, as you say, on your that's website, exactly right? what it says on my website. Yep. Yeah. And that's because that is, uh, I've felt that, um, before and avoided. And I, and it's like when you avoid it, you just continue the suffering. Yeah. Right. You and, and then you, it. Yeah, and you and you you know make all these stories to kind of validate and rationalize and justify wh- why you can't and yep. man, so many people are stuck in that. So yep. you know when I see all you know so many coaches, you know my my partner is a coach, and you know I I even started seeing some people just as by request, uh, you know, from doing group things, and then having people be like, hey, can I just meet with you one-on-one and, you know, offering support in, in the best way that I can. Yeah. Uh, but it's really, it, it really does come from that, that place of, well, I know what it's like to be there. So maybe I could, you know, hold space in a way yeah. for this person to just explore what's going on for them. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, if somebody needs to see like a therapist, if it's a little bit more severe, like I'm happy to recommend them. To, yeah. To and I'm, and like I'm that, trained but. in that, in that, kind of distinction between those two. And I think there's some important truths to coaching that you're kind of touching on, which is like one, you kind of can't take people further than you've been yourself, but you don't need to know exactly where they've been to be a useful guide. Cause you're really not, you're not a consultant, right? Which is the thing that people make the mistake a lot. They're like, Oh, you're 34 years old. Huh? You got a life figured out, man. Yeah. You want to be a life coach? Uh, it's like, I'm not here with a crystal ball, giving anybody the answers. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you said, I'm facilitating a conversation. I'm holding space for their experience in a way that can hopefully allow them to go deeper into it and learn from it themselves. Right. But I'm, and the, and the only thing that I have as a guide is my own experience to a point. Right. It's not valuable for me to project what worked for me onto somebody else and assume that that's going to be true for them. Right. So there's a bit of a paradox there, right? Where you need to have done some level of your own work yourself to be effective in the process, but you don't need to know everything about what's going on for somebody, be an expert in a particular type of experience in order to be really impactful as a coach. And I would say, actually, if you're not totally well-versed in something, you're you're really valuable to somebody as well because you're going to have less of that assumption and projection that comes into the process. You're going to be able to be more curious and open and fully with that person in what they're going through, which I think is the most powerful thing a coach can do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You get that um, sort of effect of the beginner's mind or the, yeah. the child's <clears throat> mind, the yeah. open, curious mind. Yeah. And, and what I was getting at was basically just sometimes I would see there's like this sort of uh, resistance that comes up when I see people as coaches and all this. Stuff. I'm like, man, there's just so many, but just like anything, just like anything, there's so many charlatans and frauds and no matter yeah. where you go there's always somebody that's trying to make a buck yep so in you know or doing something but uh well but i i can't help but think that the reason why there's so many coaches uh, emerging now is what it seems to me is that we really need the help yep like we really need the help in yep. the same way the mushrooms are emerging saying hey you guys need the help we're here you know, there's coaches emerging saying like, hey, we see that there's a need here and yep. we are ready to serve. I, I agree. And it's funny you pointed out the sort of charlatan piece of it. The, the coaching industry doesn't have a lot of regulatory standards and it in the very much like psychedelics right now is a bit of a wild west arena to be operating in. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So there's some parallels between the kind of like emergent psychedelic industry and the growing coaching industry um, that feel similar to me. Where like I see tons of people like on social media in particular, where it seems like basically all they did was like go somewhere and drink ayahuasca and now like they they're a life coach and like just post a bunch of photos of themselves on the beach in bali saying don't you want to live my life which is Mm -hmm. like an envy-based form of marketing that is to me very out of integrity and i don't really use social media that much for my practice I, i like to rely on the impact of direct experience right so it's conversations like this sometimes it's facilitating workshops it's referrals from clients and and I think that when people are looking for a coach, first off, it should be somebody who like resonates with you in some way, like part of their story or part of their training or their focus. So you can hear yourself in them, I think is a huge part of it. Um, another is I, I'm one of the coaches and there are different opinions on this as well. I'm one of the coaches who believes in certification and training because I think there's a large part of this work that's intuitive. And I think I had a lot of the basic deep skill set that was already present before I did my training. I mean, I was asking questions for a living when I was in sales, right? So like, there's a part of me that's a good listener, a dot connector that was already there. But I think when you have a particular framework to work with, you can lean into that model and trust a little more. And as a, as a buyer of coaching, as a coachee, like you can trust that that person has been trained to a certain level of rigor and there's some integrity in their work that you have at least a baseline of understanding of the quality of that person's process. And I think as again, as psychedelics become legalized and integrated, we'll see more frameworks supporting them. I think as coaching becomes more integrated and accepted, we'll see more legal requirements for coaches and specific frameworks that support that. And I personally think coaching is going to be as well known as yoga uh, or therapy in like the healing and growth space. But like you think about yoga in like 1997 or like 2003, like you know, maybe some people in like Silver Lake and Brooklyn knew what it was, or people who had been to India. You know what I mean? You had some hipsters and some 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 old hippies who knew what it was. But then you come to today, like there's a yoga next to the coin lop op laundromat in suburban Philadelphia around the corner from my parents' house now. It's like it is saturated, it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous. And I think coaching's on a similar trajectory of growth where like people want an alternative modality to traditional therapy because it fills an unmet market need in my mind in our mental health landscape where you can go to therapy for for healing and trauma recovery and breaking really persistent stuck patterns, dealing with true mental illness, right? And then you can go to coaching for more of the, like once you've done that foundational work and now you're on that, like you wanna start to build positive momentum, you can go to coaching for kind of growth and increasing momentum and generating positive impact and shifting mindset and transformation, which is like a whole nother arena. And I know a lot of therapists who went in my coach school with me because they wanted to be able to deepen their work with their clients. And I hear it a lot from my clients where they're like, oh, I, I think they work with me and a therapist. And it's funny because they like, they don't talk about the therapist with their friends, but they talk about their coach. Like people are proud of the work they're doing on themselves. And I think that's really exciting. Um, and as our culture integrates mental health as well, I think you're going to see coaching continue to become uh, a, a well understood and respected part of that process for people. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so you're right. The world needs more coaches, and they're and they're showing up. I think at the right time in the conversation. I think especially people our age and younger uh, really are like prioritizing mental health and centering that in the discussion of what a meaningful life is. Or maybe some of the previous generations of like in the boomers and beyond, where we're looking at you know more material or outward uh, markers of success as a life well lived. But but millennials, Gen Z, they care a lot about mental health. 
And I think that's why this is going to be continue to be a growing space. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's. I think it's the reformation of the tribe. Like mm-hmm. you said, you're talking about people that work with different people, right? It's like I got my therapist, I got my coach, I got my microdosing mentor, or whatever. I yeah. got you know, I got my mushroom guru, I got my this person, that person. Like I got my whole team of people around me, and it sort of becomes a community. Yeah, it sort of becomes a tribe. Yeah, that's just a, in a modern context mediated by our dominant, you know, financial system. Right. But even that's starting to change as we see things happening. Sure. You know, with crypto yeah. and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So, you know, who knows what what where it'll take off? But it it looks it looks good. I mean, yeah, there there is definitely. I mean, if you feel the call to, you know, for for a shift, you know, it's like you got to find the the person that that speaks to you. Everybody. Everybody that's been to a place where they've taken a leap and they've went to an edge um, definitely has something to offer, you mm-hmm. know, and, yeah. and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to now I'm like trying to I'm seeing that we're like probably you probably have to go soon. And I'm like, oh, man, there's so much more that we could talk about, but we could always do a part two. Sure. I'd love to come back, <laughs> yeah. man. I'm having a great time talking to you. And I can feel those threads sitting in the background, too. Like there's any one of these rabbit holes we could kind of jump into right now. And yeah, I don't have a ton of time. Yeah. Yeah, so you got to catch a flight. Um, uh-huh. I guess b- before we wrap, is there anything that you'd like to uh, to get out there to to communicate to to broadcast to podcast? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What do you say at this part in the show? Um, I guess if somebody does resonate with what I'm saying, I would love to talk to you. And like genuinely, this work means so much to me that it's an honor to connect with any human being out there that's questioning these type of things that wants to have a deeper conversation around this. I learn from every single person I talk to. I try to enter every single conversation with humility and just finding out what's needed. And, you know, if I'm not going to be able to support you directly, I probably would be able to point you somewhere where you could find someone. And I have a deep bench at this point. Um, so anybody who's interested in a conversation, I don't know if in the show notes you can share a link or something sure. like that, but yeah. there's a no strings attached uh, 45 minute call with me that's on the table for anybody who wants to go there. Um, and I would encourage people as well to look into some of the places we've been talking about, like you mentioned Fangi Academy, they have awesome resources for um, cultivation and stuff like that. I love the folks at San Francisco Psychedelic Society for the events yeah. they're putting on. Um the community around authentic relaging, which I touched on. Uh, I do regular facilitation for a group called authrev.org. And that's a great place to meet people who are like interested in personal growth and development and who are working with these like relational communication techniques and trying to understand themselves and each other. I think that's another movement that's really nascent and just in the early stages of growth uh, is this authentic relating stuff. I'm really excited about that. And uh, you mentioned my website. I mean, people can read more about my story at uh, effectiveconnection.com. And if they want to see a ton of cool pictures of mushrooms, they can follow me on Instagram. Um, I'm Fun Gabe with two N's, F-U-N-N-G-A-B-E. And that's that's really a personal account, but I share all the mushrooms I find uh, there on the internet and try to share what I know, right? Because I'm still a student of all of this uh, and hope I always will be. But I think that would be the best place for anybody who's interested in connecting. Uh, and following up with me would be that'd be the way to go. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, well, I highly encourage that, and uh, I would love to go foraging with you sometime. So maybe when you're when you're back in the area, we Let's can set do, that man. up. Yeah. We can do a little foraging sesh, and then we can do part two, and we'll dive more into the authentic relating portion. As okay, well. 
Absolutely, man. Well, we still got a couple weeks left in the season. Uh, it's been a wet summer in Colorado, so I'll I'll hit you up when I'm when I'm back on the ground, and uh, we'll make that happen. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks for being here, Gabe. Fun, Gabe. Uh, the website is effectiveconnection.com. You can follow him on Instagram as well, folks. And uh, all the links will be in the show notes. Till next time, mush love. Mush Peace. love, everybody. Hey, hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, check out the links in the show description, show notes, all the things that you want to know about all the sponsors and all the things mentioned here, Gabe's stuff, my stuff, ways to support, ways to share, become a patron member, uh, check out uh, Sheath Underwear, Being True to You, Fungi Academy, etc., etc. I love you very much. Leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thank you. Till next time, peace.